producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my second interview with Benjamin Studebaker. Hey, Benjamin, thanks for calling in again. Hey, thanks for having me again. So, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday on 101.9 FM, KVSH. And if you don't live in the Seattle area, it is available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we're going to dive right into this show. If you're just catching us at this moment... Go to voiceofashon.org and catch the first interview. You will love it. Okie doke. So, Benjamin, for those listeners who did miss your first interview, can you give us a sense of who you are, what you're doing with your life, and what you like to blog about? Sure. I started my blog when I was an undergrad. I went to undergrad at the University of Warwick in Britain. I started my blog. It was very small. It only did you know, maybe 100 hits on a post, and that would be a big thing. Over the years, as I've gotten older, I've moved around a bit. I did my master's at University of Chicago, and now I'm doing my Ph.D. at the University of Cambridge. And during that time, the blog has gotten more popular, and I had a post earlier in the year that did uh, close to a million hits, which yep. is really cool. Yeah, that is cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I had um, one article that I posted um, that was uh, published by the Burn Report, and I got really excited because it hit, I think, around uh, and had 800 shares within about three days or something. And that was sort of fun. Okie doke, but nothing like a million. And I'm not surprised, though, folks. Um, what you're going to want to do is check out Benjamin's blog because that is what, let's see, let me go to the top of it. I adore this. So, yet another attempt to make the world a better place by writing things. That's sort of your subtitle. Yeah. yeah. And that's what the show is all about, is having people on who um, who are seeking to inspire positive social change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So at the top here, we've got about politics, economics, international relations, all of those are categories, basically, of that you write in. And then there's one that I'm going to need you to define for all of us, and that's sophiarchism. And I am pronouncing that correctly, maybe? Yep, sophiarchism. Awesome. So what does that mean? That's a term I came up with a while ago. Uh, Basically, I observed that there are two general ways of thinking about what's wrong with democratic political systems. One is, is to say that they're corrupt, and another is to say that we have a consciousness problem. So if we have a consciousness problem, it's that people aren't aware of the problems that we have they, or they don't know how to fix them or they have attached themselves to the wrong solution. And if you have a corruption problem, you think, well, everybody knows what we need to do, but we can't get the policies through because people with money are getting in the way. And then people tend to emphasize things like campaign finance and voter suppression. And generally, I think it's more of a consciousness problem than a corruption problem, although I think that there's a corruption element that shapes consciousness. There's a lot of political money that's used to persuade people that the problems that exist don't exist or that the solutions that would work wouldn't work or that other solutions that wouldn't be effective would be effective. There's a lot of media outlets that are owned by people with money and think tanks that are owned by people with money and lobbyists paid for 
by people with money, and those people exist to shape the conversation and to shape the way people think about stuff. Right. Fundamentally, I think that the problem is that people don't necessarily know how to fix the problem. Or they may not even know a problem exists. Right, or they may not know it exists. And so what I try to do with Sophie Archism is to think about ways that you can find the people who do know what the problems are and do know how to solve them and put them in a position where they're empowered. Mm, so, so, okay, first of all, I love how you break that down, and I'm really glad that you just did that because when people feel that it's all corruption, that is, is devastating emotionally, I think, and psychologically. It, it really sets people up to become less empowered in how they approach the problem. And yet, obviously, there are elements of corruption, so you can't say they aren't there, but I've, I really like how you very deductively, in a way, broken that out. It's funny because, like, if I were to ask someone who lives on my island, so I live on Vashon Island, and we have roughly between, we have about 10,000 or so people who live here full-time, and then we have about 2,000 or 3,000 people who will show up in the summer. So there's a certain number of summer homes and things like that on the island. But that's a pretty small community, and we're water-bound. We don't have any solid bridges. We've just got ferries. So there's a real sense of island living, and that increases your connection. I mean, honestly, if I'm not in the mood to talk, I really can't go grocery shopping because I will have about seven conversations before I get to the checkout line. So um, so that's what it feels like to live here. And if I were to ask someone, hey, you know, what are the like top three problems on Vashon, things you'd like to have dealt with? I think in general, people might be able to come up with three things. But even that is going to be a little bit of a stretch, you know, because you still only know what you know in your own little bubble. So the idea of asking people, to be able to know what the three big problems are in the state of Washington or the three big problems on the West Coast or the three big problems as a nation. During the Occupy movement, I did some research into what the colonies looked like when our system of government was being created by the founding families. And I do say founding families because the wives were amazing. So, um, you know, these men, the ones that were married, had really strong support at home, and the women were really amazing. So the founding families, like in Vermont, for example, I think there was something like, uh, of course, at that time they broke it down to white men over the age of 16 or 18, white women who couldn't vote, um, blacks of either sex couldn't vote. You know, they had a totally different breakdown. But the number of people in Vermont who were allowed to vote, who would be represented by two senators from that state, was something like 40,000 people in the whole state. So that means each of those senators, when they went down to wherever they were meeting um, with uh, the other senators, they carried with them each about the votes of 22,000 people. Right now, the number of people who can vote in the state of Vermont is tremendous, like 600,000 or something. So each of those people, when they show up, they're now representing the two senators, are representing 300,000 or so people compared to 22,000 people. So our system of government 
the numbers, yes, the House of Representatives can get larger, but the senators, we still have 100 people who sit down in the Senate and make decisions on behalf of now 350 million people. The system hasn't grown with the population or the number of states. You know, it hasn't it's, – it's interesting. So – yeah, and if you think that's bad in Vermont, imagine living in California. Right, exactly. So, or Texas, or Florida. So, um, so what you're mentioning about that—that that it's almost in a way not possible or reasonable, maybe, to ask every person who lives in the country to be capable of knowing enough about what's going on on this massive national level. So, how do we grapple with that? Well. It's- very difficult to do because we have, as, as you say, so many people who have so much going on in their lives. They have families, they have kids, and I think what a lot of the time we fall into is blaming people for being less involved and for not knowing what's going on and getting mad at people and telling them to educate themselves and go out and, and, and do stuff. And for a lot of people, that's not realistic, especially people who are working multiple jobs that are low income. And we need to find ways to get people in power who care about the issues that those people face mm-hmm. while acknowledging that we're not necessarily going to be able to very easily mobilize a lot of those people into a persistent mass movement. Right, right. They can show up for a period of time. They can care about a few very specific issues. But like for myself, you know, it's been fifth at the end of about 14 months of nearly full-time engagement in um, the political situation and what was going on, I had shelved a lot of stuff. There was a whole bunch of stuff sitting back there on my back burners, and I finally got to a point after the DNC in Philadelphia where I was there for nine days reporting on the ground about what was going on. I came back and said, mm, okay, I even I have to take time now and focus on my family, you know, my kids, my life. So sustainability is an issue. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's something that we're going to run into after this election is over. There's going to be a bit of a progressive hangover. A lot of people have worked very hard and tried very hard, and they're going to have a hard time sustaining that level of energy and commitment. So I'm curious. You have, as as you explained briefly in your intro, um, for those who have just joined us on the show, I'm talking with Benjamin Studebaker, who is my first guest blogger, and I couldn't be happier. Like, I probably chose the best guest blogger on planet Earth. I'm having a great time. So Benjamin is 24. He's working on his Ph.D. He's from America, but he's currently studying in where again exactly? University of Cambridge in Britain. There you go. And um, so what I love about his website is that there's also evaluations and analysis of what's going on in Britain, which is a really important country because it's the system we as Americans came from. It's the system that our founding families were most familiar with when they were trying to brainstorm how they could create the representative democracy or whatever they thought it was going to be. Um, that our country would be based upon. So you have a really interesting article here called um, Tax Credits and How to Fix the House of Lords. A lot of people in America don't even know the name of our vice president right now. I mean, you know, political um, literacy is not really high in America. So I imagine most people like me 
do not know much about the House of Lords. I was pretty surprised when I looked into it. Could you um, explain a little bit about how that's basically that system? So the idea behind the House of Lords, it's the upper house in Britain. So it, it is in a similar functional role as the Senate, but it's much weaker than the Senate because it can only delay legislation passed by the lower house. It can't block it permanently, and it can't propose its own legislation. The House of Lords consists of peers who have been appointed by the government or inherited the position or have acquired it because they're priests. Uh, it's very right. Let's be really let's be really system. clear on that. So here at present, it says the House of Lords consists of twenty six Church of England bishops, called right. the Lords Spiritual, and ninety two hereditary peers. This, of course, is completely opposite of anything that an, that an American would expect to have in their government, because you've got church and you've got basically nobles. Right. And then the rest of the membership is appointed by the government, and they can be appointed for any number of reasons. And it, oftentimes people allege that it's corrupt and it's, it's spoiled. Okay. It says the majority are life peers, meaning they're like we have in the Supreme Court, I assume? Yep. Unless they die or retire. Wow. And they're appointed by the Queen, though by convention, in accordance with the Prime Minister's recommendations. What would happen if the Prime Minister and the Queen disagreed? Well, generally, the Queen uh, the, the queen may disagree with the Prime Minister quite a lot, but the Queen doesn't say anything about it because that would create a constitutional crisis. Technically speaking, the Queen is empowered by the laws to do lots of things that, if she tried to do them in practice, would precipitate a great deal of political instability and, and would probably result in Britain getting rid of the monarchy. And as you say on about halfway through the second paragraph, this is a horrific mess. Explain to us a little bit about what's going on with this. And then, though, it sounds like they did something good. You say they impeded an attempt by the Prime Minister, David Cameron at the time, and his government to cut tax credits for working families as part of its ongoing austerity program, which we had discussed briefly in the previous show that we've discovered austerity measures deepen a recession or a depression rather than alleviating the economic problems. Is that true? Yes, yes. So, and, yeah. Well, what it means is that the House of Lords blocked legislation passed by the House of Commons from going into effect, which gives the House of Commons the option to reintroduce it the following year. But generally speaking, if the House of Lords does it, it has so little public support that the House of Commons usually drops the issue. I'm really confused. Why would the House of Commons, which you think would be representing the needs of the commoners, be passing legislation which was going to cause a harsh 5 to 10% drop in income to the people who are most economically in need, around 20,000 pounds a year or less in income? Why would the House of Commons be the source of such a thing and then the House of Lords would step in and block it? If you think corruption is the problem, you would think it would be the reverse. You would think that the appointed aristocratic House of Lords would be all up for something like that, and the popularly elected House of Commons would not. But it's more of a consciousness problem. And because the House of Lords uh, it consists of a lot of people who are older, from an earlier generation of politics, mm -hmm. when those kinds of policies were much less popular than they are now, it had a lot of people in there who were not excited about that. 
And the House right. of Lords function in Britain, it, its function was to be an expertise check. It's supposed to consist of people who are the, the well-lettered, the well-educated, uh, and, and many of them are not. Many of them are appointed, and they really shouldn't be there. But the intent of the House of Lords is to provide some kind of expertise check on the democratic institution. And once right. in a while, it, it does work. A clock is right once or twice a day. <laughs> uh, thank you. That's funny. Go ahead. But if, if they if they change the way that they appointed people to it and put people in there who really knew what they were doing, then it might be right a little bit more often and it might be more effective. So it was put in there with the idea of um, preventing tyranny of the masses. Yeah, yeah. To check on, uh, yeah. Right. Well, now that that's interesting because so I have um, I haven't talked about this on the show, but I'm going to have um, a new series that I'll be producing. It's a prose poetry and purpose focus on series. And what I'm planning to do is essentially hit up one country at a time for anywhere from three to six to eight months and interview writers from that specific country and through them and their writing help to discuss sort of culturally, politically and whatnot, how that country is handling issues that all people around the world have to deal with as a way of hopefully importing back to my audience and my American base as well um, ideas about how things can be done better. So what I find interesting about this is that Right now in America, um, one thing that we hear often from the it's all about corruption perspective is that we should institute term limits for everyone. So where I live, Jim McDermott just retired after I think about 28 years of being successively reelected as the representative for, I think it's District 7 that I live in. So he's spent 28 years you know, uh, representing us. And some people would say that should never be allowed to happen. We need to institute term limits, you know, eight years on senators or whatever it would be. But if you do that, then you are increasing the ability for um, in-the-moment anxiety within the culture and and maybe emotion-based irrational reactions to hold more sway over your government Whereas people who have been around for a while, they maybe have enough time in the system like Bernie Sanders has been, you know, in the Senate. I think, what, he's approaching 20 years now that he's been in the House or the Senate, a blend of the yeah, two. Yeah, very long time. Yeah. And so they bring with them a sense of um, additional perspective you get with a greater period of time, which is what you were mentioning they have in the House of Lords. So, so what do you think about instituting term limits across the board in our American government system? I think it's a blunt instrument. I think that it kind of takes this assumption that power is intrinsically corrupting, mm -hmm. which I, I don't think is necessarily true. If you look at the people who have most recently been elected to Congress in the Republican Party, they're the most extreme people in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. They're the most polarizing, the most unwilling to compromise. They don't have a sense of the importance of the need to move things through the institution. Mm -hmm. And it's the older Republicans who have been there for a long time who are more willing to negotiate, who 
have more of an understanding of how things work and how you can get things done. Mm-hmm. And so there's a tendency when you're constantly turning over, it, it's harder to pass down traditions of expertise, traditions of understanding, uh, and of valuing certain things mm-hmm. that younger members of the legislature learn from older members. Now, people who like term limits will respond, well, they also learn all of the corruption from the older members. Mm-hmm. But it's going to take a lot more than term limits to fix this. Right. There are a lot of people in that Congress who were very recently elected who were arguably more dangerous before they were elected than the people they replaced. <laughs> people may have figured out by now that this is there's a reason we're having a second interview. I mean, honestly, I could do five with you. <laughs> I just love the subject area. Um, but for let me um, go ahead and give some appreciations here to people who allow this show to happen. You're listening to March Twisdale on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose here on Voice of Vashon. Programming support is provided by Rain Signs. For over 27 years, Rain Signs has produced some of Vashon's most recognizable landmarks. Rain prides himself in art, directing the work to reflect Vashon and the customer's unique character. You can contact Rain at 206 463 2607. Also, support for this program comes from Vashon Community Care Foundation. Financial support for Vashon Community Care, which has been providing senior living choices for island residents since 1995. They now include rehab services, and you can reach them at 206-567-4421. So we're going to have to leave the House of Lords a little bit and move over to this other fascinating blog post. And please, everyone, just... Don't miss a chance to check out Benjamin's blog. You would go to Benjamin Studebaker, spelled like the car, dot com. I love it. It's it's. There's just so much fun stuff here. All of the posts are really um, research backed up. All I can say is you're gonna love them. Okie doke. So this one for everyone listening right now who has a child in college, this is going to be interesting to you. The title is How ISAs allow rich people to exploit college students. I didn't know what an ISA was. Benjamin, why don't you tell us? Okay, so we have the student debt crisis. Everybody knows about the student debt crisis. The right new answer to the student debt crisis is to sign students up to ISAs, income-sharing agreements. So what that means is that you find some wealthy investor. That wealthy investor pays your tuition. In exchange, you promise the investor a percentage of your income for a duration of time after you leave school. What this means is that they're betting that the percentage of the income that they'll get from you will be larger than the tuition that they pay. Okay, so wait, wait. So first of all, if someone is promoting this, then they've already done their research and they've already hired their experts to prove to them that it's going to end up working out in the long run on behalf of the investors. So who would these right. investors be? Uh, these investors would be Wall Street guys, people working for financial institutions, uh, wealthy tycoons, anybody. It could be anybody with enough money to pay for somebody's tuition. How does a wealthy investor connect with, you know, my friend down the street, Tommy, who wants to go to college? How, how do they end up meeting each other? Well, some of these universities are trying pilot programs where they create these arrangements with specific financial institutions, 
Mm-hmm. You would think that if you were going to do one of these things, the government could just do it, you know, and you could structure it as a graduate tax or something like that, which they do in some countries. But uh-huh. this cuts out the government. So instead of having the government pay for you to go to school and then maybe get some of it back later, they're having private investors make the money instead. And investors generally are investing with the focus of making money, not on being charitable. Right, which means that it would be easier if ISAs became very popular for people going into lucrative subject areas to get funding and much harder for people going into the arts. Got it. So let's imagine someone signs up with one of these things and they're looking at this contract and they know it's going to cost them 200000 to get their medical degree. I'm just throwing numbers out there. And just a simple, easy number. And they, after, when they sign this contract, they're obviously obliging themselves not just to give, let's say it's 15% of their income for 10 years or something like that. Um, Once again, I'm just throwing a number out there. But aren't they also obliging themselves to a certain level of um, job searching? Right, because once you come out of school, if you end up with a job that is lower income, that percentage is going to be a heavier hit to you, even though it will be smaller in terms of the absolute amount of money you'll have to pay. For someone who is on a lower income, uh, you know, 15% is a harder thing to manage than someone on a higher income. So it also forces you to look for a job that pays more. But would they, if they got a job that didn't pay very much, do they end up coming under any duress from the contract? Are they punished or are they charged, um, you know, a penalty fee or something for underperforming? Not that I know of. Of course, if, if the contractor anticipates that, he's probably not going, he or she is probably not going to loan the money. Right. So the students who are seeking these out would be doing their best during the application process to make it really clear that they're a gung-ho, you know, go out there and make a ton of money type of person. Right. Which is exactly where the person who's the artist may not be that gung-ho and the person who's interested in going into finance might be. And even if you're an artist who wants to make a lot of money, who's going to believe that you're one of the artists who will because it's so much rarer? Right, 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 right. So are are universities going to be allowed to, um, I don't know, are they going to be allowed to be prejudicial in who they choose to support? By every indication, they can't make investors put money into these funds if the funds are not making money. Right. There would be no incentives. So So your main concern with this is? My main concern with this is that it is allowing older, wealthy people to make money off of college students. Effectively, I see it a lot as uh, very similar to indentured service. Indentured service being when people were coming across the ocean, they would make a contract with some wealthy person in the United States and the contract would stipulate that they'd have to work for a period of time as effectively a slave once they got over. And in this case, you're just getting a percentage of income. You're not getting the entirety. Mm-hmm. But let's say that you made one of these ISAs with 10 different students, and each one at 10%. Now, effectively, you have the income of an entire person just for paying for somebody's tuition, something that the government could do, something that, I, I don't think that we should be making students desperate over. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing with the military. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of kids go into the military because they have no other options. They're not going into the military because they have tons of great options, but they prefer to go join the army or whatever. Some people do that, but many people are essentially pressed into service by a system that provides them with few to no economic options. And the right will say, well, you know, you're, you're, you're making the agreement. No one's forcing you to have an ISA. No one's forcing you to join the Army. Mm-hmm. But if you're put in a position where you have very little negotiating power and you don't have an alternative way of raising the funding, you're more or less forced to do this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with student debt. Right. right. This is just and another so form of student debt. It's just it, it looks different, but it's still another form of debt. Right, right. Except instead of repaying a loan to the government, you're paying uh, potentially more money than, than a loan's value to some Wall Street investor. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand is that functionally, the, the way our government is designed to be capable of working and can in some cases work is that it is, in a way, it's a not-for-profit entity. Its goal is to take money in the form of taxes, perform, um, pay the people who need to be paid in order to produce a project and complete a project or maintain a project, and then at the end, not have anything left over. Whereas if you are for-profit, you're doing exactly the same thing except that you are creating an extra layer of cost, which is called profit, and that gets handed off to people who basically want to have big, fat, you know, checkbooks. You still have all the employees. You still have the project managed. You still have, you know, all that, but you have this extra layer of cream between your cakes. And and it may, I mean, I can understand that, People can choose to do that independently within the business world if they wish to. But when you say, we don't want our government to do this, we want a for-profit entity to do this, you're automatically choosing the more expensive option. Yeah, and government could pay for a lot of people to have in-state tuition for not as much money as people think. The headline number that is always given is $80 billion per year, mm-hmm. which sounds like a lot of money until you think about what we spend on other programs. Medicare is $600 billion. Social Security is about $900 billion. Defense is up there as well. Mm-hmm. So as far as government programs are concerned, tuition-free college is, you know, it's not really cheap, but it's not really expensive either. So, and I, I know I want to run this by and see if there's any flaws in it, so feel free to point out something I might be missing. It seems to me that you can tax your population and take those taxes and use them to pay the college expenses to educate the younger members of your population as they're stepping into their adulthood. And then the result is that there's no usury, there's no interest, there's no debt, and those young people now step into becoming an educated workforce, they're more successful, and they're more functional in our political system, they're functional as parents, everything tends to get better. And then they also can be taxed to pay for the college education of the next generation of young people stepping into adulthood. And that cycle, to me, it misses all the whipped cream profit layering that the banks currently make off of all the loans. 
and it, it is a way of direct investment within a society, and it seems like there's no um, largesse, there's no waste, but instead, we have the young people who are the most vulnerable, aside from our our aged who are on the way out, we have the young people who are most vulnerable stepping into adulthood without any of the skills or tools they need to really succeed in the adult world, and we're requiring them to go over here to this thing called a bank, take out a loan, go to school, and enter into adulthood immediately in debt, paying interest to that bank, and you end up basically with the same thing you would have had except there's this additional sort of entity called this bank over here that's siphoning money off of a system that could cycle without any siphoning being necessary. So what yeah, am I missing? You could. Uh, I don't think you're missing really anything there. Uh, there's, a, there's a financial incentive for financial institutions to lobby governments to allow these kinds of policies. The way they see it, an IFA is just an alternative. It's just another choice. It's just something else you could do. That's the way it gets presented when people talk about introducing it, like they did at uh, Purdue University in my home state of Indiana. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, people don't think about how, at least a lot of people don't think about how public investment is really a way of cheapening and reducing the cost of other services that you will have to provide later on. If you spend more on education, later on you get to spend less on prison. Right. Right. And less on maybe CPS because the children are not being abused because the parents are not desperate. Yeah, if you have stronger parenting, that helps the schools out a whole Mm -hmm. lot. Yep. Yep. And that's, you know, people talk about weaknesses in the education system, but our, our biggest problem now is that we have so many parents who don't have enough time to spend at home reading to their kids, helping their kids out, because we have, over the course of the last 30 or 40 years, created an economic system where most families need to have two incomes. Mm-hmm. And it used to not be that way. It used to be someone, whether it's the man or the woman, it doesn't matter. Someone could take more time off. Someone could spend more time at home and help out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's been interesting as um, I have been blessed with the opportunity to not have to work outside the home. I have worked and done quite a lot of different projects, but I haven't been forced to, which means that when something goes chaotic in the lives of my children or in the lives of their friends – I can more easily than some um, just say, oops, I'm going to stop that project temporarily and step over here for a day, an hour, a week, and attend to this. And that's something that I don't want it to be a luxury. I want it to be something that most people have the opportunity to do. So Yeah, and that, that inequality is one that we don't talk about very much, and I think it plays a big role in later differences. I saw a study that said that most of the difference in educational outcomes for people based on class is already present by the age of five. Mm. People tend to blame low-income parents and families for that, and it's really not their fault. They just don't have the income that they need, and so they have to work. Right. Well, it's the same thing as um, blaming very you know, young people who are living in hideous environments for their behavior at the age of 11 or something like that. I mean, you know, 
the idea of calling some child a super predator when they've been essentially raised in a slum war zone. It's blaming the victim. That child is a victim. That child is, you know, the result of the adults of the society failing that child. Yeah, yeah. We, we continue to put more and more pressure on teachers and police to do mm-hmm. jobs that, you know, we used, to, we used to do through other social programs. We used to invest in education. We, with the GI Bill, we used to let a lot of people go to university for very cheap during the post-war period. Mm-hmm. We used to do uh, a, lot of, a lot more intervention in the home because we used to have wages at a higher level for low-income families, mm-hmm. making it easier for people to spend more time at home. And those investments from our society made a huge difference in social mobility. Social mobility has fallen since the 70s right? as the income gap has increased, as the educational gap has increased. Yeah. You can't do things like that. So then I'm looking at this other article. I'm not sure which one this was under, which category this was under, whether it's, it's um, democracy discriminates against the young. And I want to take a second for um, just to remind our listeners who may have joined us um, in the last few minutes. So my name is March Twisdale. I'm producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose um, here on Voice of Vashon, 101.9 FM. And I'm interviewing Benjamin Studebaker, my first guest blogger. I'm just beyond thrilled that you have this blog. Honestly, what I, I mean, it's like one day I'm sure you're going to write a book or two or three, but this blog, in a way, is almost better than a book because it's alive. It's it keeps up with the times, um, whereas a book becomes instantly sort of um, out of date the minute it's published. You know, if it's dealing with issues that are like current events. So this great blog is BenjaminStudebaker.com. Studebaker spelled like the car. And you have several categories, and I'm looking at one of the blog posts here, which is Democracy Discriminates Against the Young. Your um, Ph.D., what is exactly the focus of your Ph.D.? Inequality and democracy, how rising inequality destabilizes democracy. Exactly. Okay, so what are your thoughts on on this blog post? Yeah, I've noticed that there are a lot of issues that only affect people until they get to a certain age. And once you get past a certain age, you're no longer affected by that issue, and it becomes less important to you. Mm-hmm. So youth unemployment only affects youth and people who have kids. University costs only affect young people and people who have kids. The education system only affects people who have kids because the kids in the primary and secondary system aren't old enough to vote. Mm-hmm. So this creates a bias in our system against those populations because once people get up into their 50s and 60s and higher, they have much less incentive to prioritize those kinds of issues. A lot of people who are older might rather pay lower taxes, let the schools sink a little bit, and keep more money for their retirement. Understandably so because it's difficult. Retirement is hard. Mm -hmm. But this is kind of a built-in structural incentive in our system to always put social programs for older people ahead of social programs for younger people. Well, actually, I think that makes a lot of sense because also younger people um, and people who have kids 
while they care about the issues that are directly impacting them right now, such as education and, you know, youth unemployment or whatever, they're also looking ahead 25, 35 years later um, when they're going to join the retirement crowd. And so the older folks are less inclined to be concerned about the issues that matter to the young, and the young folks are actually also still inclined to be concerned about issues that impact um, the older generations because they're going to get there eventually. So I guess... Right. If it's still ahead of you, you still have to care about it. Right, right, but once it's behind you. Interesting. And, and people, I think generations have certain formative political experiences. There are certain things that happen when you're in your late teens or early 20s that really affect the way that you think about politics, and those things tend to stay with you much later in life. A lot of older generations that came up during the 70s and 80s have a view of government that is grounded in opposition to the Soviet Union and in stagflation and the experience of that, which is associated in their minds with a lot of state intervention into the economy. Mm-hmm. And that creates a heavy bias against those kinds of policies. Yeah, what was going on? You had so you have this period of time where we're coming out of FDR's New Deal, and we transitioned into Reaganomics. What? Yeah. What happened there? Well, what happened is that the OPEC embargo happened in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. And the OPEC embargo in the early 70s kicked the price of oil up. Right. And oil is involved in so many products, and it's involved in the transport of so many products, that that generated a price spiral where prices increased and increased. Mm -hmm. And because they were being increased not by inflationary government policy but by an oil price spike, it was not something that could be adjusted without damaging growth. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is the Federal Reserve kicked up interest rates to try to fight this inflation, but in the process, submarined economic growth in the 70s and produced that stagnant economy mixed with inflation. Mm. They started to get it back under control once the OPEC embargo ended, but then in 1979, Iran had the revolution. Mm-hmm. And the Iranian revolution, again, kicked oil prices up way high and kicked inflation back in the year. So it was economic and, frustration that led people to nod their heads and smile when Reagan um, and his people stood up and said, we can do better. Right, because it, it's hard for, you know, Jimmy Carter sometimes would do this. He would say, well, we have to reduce our dependence on oil. We have to uh, you know, get away from it because we can't really whip this inflation unless the oil price comes down Mm -hmm. without destroying growth. And Reagan came in, and uh, Paul Volcker, the the, uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve under Reagan, he came in late in the Carter administration and began a policy of massively increasing the interest rate to bring down inflation in the early 80s. And that produced an early 80s recession. Mm -hmm. But by 83... The inflation rate had been mostly brought down, and so they started to lower the rate. And Reagan did a little bit of stimulus spending, which people forget about. Reagan mm. increased government spending in, in the early 80s, and that brought the economy out of recession. And then in 84, that was in time for Reagan to look really good mm-hmm. and win re-election. 
And that coming out of that early 80s recession around 84, for a lot of Americans, convinced them that Reagan was correct about economic fundamentals. And when really what had happened is that the oil prices had come back down and the period of pain that was inflicted by the policy was then, was de- deliberately ended mm-hmm. by conventional stimulus and a conventional lowering of the interest rate. Mm. But now they had everyone in their pocket, basically. Right. Because when you go through a period of extreme economic stress, people throw out their existing ideology and they look for something else to adapt to replace it. Mm-hmm. And Reagan was in the right place at the right time. Reagan had run in the primary in 76 and in 68, and on both of those occasions, he had lost in the Republican primary to a candidate who, broadly speaking, still subscribed to the post-war consensus view of how to manage the economy, mm-hmm. Nixon and Ford. Right, but then the the struggle as a result of the oil embargo, right. Yep, but it, it eroded people's confidence over time to the point where they were willing to embrace someone that voters in the 60s considered as extreme as uh, anybody in, in the Republican Party. In the 60s, Reagan was considered way, way out there. Right, right, interesting. So how do we line up? It's interesting you mentioned um, during the first interview um, about your appreciation or interest in the Roman Empire and some corollaries or ways in which the American empire, if we want to call it that, I don't know if we do, um, lines up. And I find that fascinating because I sort of did the same thing when I was in my mid-teens. I started looking at various empires throughout history and, and watching the arc of the average empire. And I started looking at my own country and going, hmm, where am I at on that arc and when are we going to hit the peak and start to slump? So what are your thoughts about America, Rome? What might we... Uh, hope to avoid, or what can we learn from how Rome handled things? Well, Rome used to have a, a republic. It used to be dominated by a legislature, not by an emperor originally. Mm-hmm. And during that period, there was a lot of class conflict in the Roman Republic between the wealthy people in the Senate who lent out all the money and the ordinary plebeians, the citizens of Rome, who tended to be debtors, who tended to borrow a lot of money. Right. And over the centuries, what happened is that these debts would get settled by these people having to sell their plots of land. Mm-hmm. They'd sell their land to the wealthy landowner, get a lump sum. And then, of course, within a generation or two, if not earlier, that money would be spent mm-hmm. and they would be destitute and on the street. Right, with no land to work. Sort of like um, what's been going on with family farmers in America. Right. And so then they would get rehired uh, or, or not, if there was a lot of slave labor coming in and no one needed to hire anybody. So their best case scenario is they would get hired at, at, to work on the land that they used to own, and the worst case scenario is that they would just end up on the street until they got some disease and died. Right. And so what the Roman generals started to figure out is that uh, if you professionalize the military, mm-hmm. And then you uh, go after, you, you conquer foreign territory. You can then distribute the land that you conquer to the soldiers. And that will make them very loyal to you. 
Uh, and it will make people enlist in perpetuity. Interesting. So they got rid of their, their, their draft, and they professionalized the military and created a set of rules where if you served for 20 years, you would get a plot of land at the end of it. And so if you were on a campaign conquering some territory, you had an incentive to work really hard because you, there wasn't going to be land available unless you won. And you had to stick around long enough in order to earn your portion of it. Right, right. It's almost and like then, stock options. Right. <laughs> and so over time, this makes people very loyal to individual generals because the individual general, the land he conquers, goes to his legion. Mm. And so then people started to figure out, well, if, if we don't have any foreigners to conquer to take their land, we could fight with some other general, some other faction within the empire, and dispossess those nobles and hand their land out. Oh, I didn't know about that. So when you get these big civil wars during the late Republic, mm-hmm. the people who take the losing side, they end up getting executed, and their land gets repossessed, and their money gets repossessed and distributed to the soldiers of the winning So it was a form of um, cannibalization. Right, right. And it all comes back to that conflict between the debtors and the lenders, the unsolved conflict between rich and poor in Roman society. And I imagine that probably expanded, like, you know, so you have, like, um, if you think of a ripple effect, like you have a ripple outward into the closest lands, they get conquered, they get distributed, and then over a period of time, there's going to be wealthy landowners who will start to consolidate and monopolize and, you know, buy out individuals. And then there's a need, again, to push further out so you can distribute land to the now dispossessed people. So it sounds like it was maybe the ultimate bubble. Yeah, it is kind of the ultimate bubble. And eventually you get to the as far as you can go and pop. Right, right. And, and, At the end of the Republic, what happened was that a single general eventually was able to fight the rest of them off, and he was able to do this through a bit of a cult of personality, and Uh that's Caesar. Uh And in political theory, we kind of have a term for this, Caesarism, the, the prevalence of desperate populations turning to a charismatic strongman, everything by going in and messing with the institutions. And so what Caesar did as dictator perpetuum and then his nephew Augustus did as emperor was to come in and smash the power of the landowners in the Senate, Hmm. subordinating themselves to an emperor. Right. And once you do that, the freedom that people associated with the Republic went out the window very quickly, and you get this long period of imperial rule, which was marginally better for very poor people, but still eventually produced decline and collapse, because the society got much less innovative, much less forward-thinking, which is what happens when you put military dictators in charge forever. Right, right. I mean, ultimately, a society is only as... Was that was that phrase out there like you know the the holes only is as good as the 
the pieces that make it up or something. I mean, societies thrive when we are a form of cooperation. You cannot cooperate when you're being coerced. You can give in. You can, um, you know, allow yourself to be compelled. You know, you can, what's the other word for it? Another word for giving in. I don't know, it's like abdicate, something like that. But you're yeah. you're not going to bring your whole self forward, you know, and, and, and all the gifts that you can offer will not be discovered if you're, you know, living in a state of fear and basically being compelled all the time. Right. If you're going to have a successful democratic system of any kind, it has to be inclusive enough that everybody feels like the system works well enough for them enough of the time. Right. And once that goes away, people will look for an extractor, someone who can come along and take from the people who they believe have stuff that they don't deserve. And, and that can come from the right and the left. The poor can say, we've got to take from the, the landowners. And mm-hmm. the on the other side, people can say, we've got to go take from the foreigners. We've got to go take from these other people who are screwing us over. Right, right. And ultimately, what it all boils down to is that we are living on a finite planet, and we don't have another planet Earth that we can just hop over to. And um, so I think in a way, all expansion eventually reaches the end of how far it can go, and then you start to have contraction. Pretty sure we've been in the middle of contraction for a few years now. Economically, or... If you want to get out of it, you, you have to... The, the rich people in our country mm-hmm. have to recognize the way they recognized during the 30s when we went through a period very similar to this. Right that if they don't distribute things more evenly so that people feel like the system is fair and that they're included in it, mm-hmm. they are producing conditions that are favorable for Caesar types. Right. And a lot of people, they look at our current Caesar type candidate and say, oh, people like him because they're racist. No, they like him because they are desperate. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do. No one has given them a solution. Everyone is just saying, this is the way globalization is now. Deal with it. Yeah. And they're not going to deal with it. Yeah, go off and suffer quietly. Well, you know, the people in Mexico who we destroyed, you know, with their economic policies, NAFTA and other things, they're not just sitting around deciding to be miserable. They are doing what they can to take care of their children. And if that means illegally crossing a border and coming to America, they're going to do it if they have to do it. Yeah, there was an article I remember reading in National Review a few months ago, a very conservative publication, that argued that people living in Appalachia should just move, that all their problems would be solved. They just moved away and went somewhere else. Hmm. I, I think that there are a lot of people who are just a little out of touch with how badly a lot of people in the country are doing right. and have been doing for a long time. Oh, Yeah. And the more inequality increases, the more out of touch people get because Mm -hmm. the way that people are living is really very different. If you have a college degree now and you make middle income or higher, the way you live is just completely different from the way people live without a degree on lower income. And people are intentionally segregated by income. When my family first moved here in 1998, um, a real estate agent took my husband and I out, weren't married yet, but Um, took us out driving around to show us some houses. Um, He had flown me up from California specifically for a weekend visit to look at houses so that I could help him choose which house he wanted to buy. And 
So you drive along, but a boom, but a bang. She goes into this cute neighborhood, trees everywhere. It looks great. Whatever you drive around, I'm like, all of these houses are identical. They were the same layout, flipped one side or the other. And so I ended up saying, well, they're all the same, so I'll choose that one because it has the, the largest yard. as a corner lot. You know, I could imagine a garden there or whatever. And um, later I moved up because I was still in college at the time. When I moved up, what I discovered, this is the Sammamish Plateau, is that it was completely developed based upon economic grouping. So we were in the $250,000 neighborhood, and across the street and up the hill was the $350,000 neighborhood. Literally, the entire plateau had been chopped up and turned into economic subdivisions. So there you are, hanging out with all sorts of people who are basically economically similar to yourself. It was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's a real division now in the way people experience everything. Schools are segregated by class. Uh, We talk about race a lot, but Mm -hmm. class has at least as much going on. A lot of the white college-educated people who are voting for Clinton don't talk to the white without a college degree people who are voting for the Caesar. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's just no communication and there's no understanding of, of why on, on either side, why anyone could possibly find the other, the other one appealing. Right. Because there's just no similarity of experience anymore. Yeah. Yeah, classism, huge issue in America, in the world. Yeah, people, people talk about how they miss in the 50s and 60s how a lot of uh, you know, white people all kind of had a shared experience. Mm-hmm. People talk about wanting to go back to that, and of course, you don't want to go back to the fifties and sixties because, for so many other marginalized groups, it wasn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. But among white people, that's been lost in large part because inequality within the white population has ballooned so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Oh, sadly, we are out of time. Benjamin, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was great.